If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew 25, uh, verses 1 to 13 is where we're going to be this morning. Matthew 25, 1 to 13 is where we're going to be. This, um, this spring, our boys got involved in baseball for the first time. And really, first time in organized sports at all uh, that they were really involved in. So we, we put them in baseball, and, and I can't tell you how... Uh, crazy of a fanatic I am when I'm watching. I swore I'm not going to be one of those parents, and lo and behold, I was climbing the fence, uh, <laughs> screaming, go, go, go. Um, so the boys really enjoyed it, but they, they, I saw them grow over the time of their involvement in baseball. And there was one thing that was constantly, they were made aware of every time they took the field. They're standing out in their positions, and the coaches would always ask them, are you baseball ready? And that always meant that they were going to stand in a posture that was ready in case the ball was hit to them. If it was coming your way, you needed to be ready to field the ball. And at first, they had no idea what that meant, what their position really involved, what all they had to do with their position. And then over the course of the season, baseball ready took on a different connotation. It, 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 they gathered what it meant. They were ready and understood that at any moment the baseball could come to them. They began to understand what imminence meant. The difference between imminence and immediacy in baseball is paramount. Imminence is the baseball could come to you at any moment, and you don't know when it could come. Immediacy is it's coming to me right now. All right? There's a lot of times in baseball where immediacy is not a big concern. You may go the whole game without the ball ever being hit to you. But the game-winning shot could be hit in your direction, and all of a sudden, the baseball is imminent. Judgment is upon you. Jesus has already explained, in the context of our passage, He's already explained to His disciples that His return is imminent. He hasn't left that topic. He's going to keep going on that topic until the end of this chapter. He's explained to them He's going to be coming quickly, and it's going to come all of a sudden. You're not going to know when it's going to happen, but it's going to come all of a sudden. And so in this parable, we're going to find that there are some that are ready for the groom to return, and some that aren't. And we've got to look at the difference. And it's a parable, which always makes it extra challenging. So let's look at Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 to 13. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in, went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, 
for you know neither the day nor the hour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that this run of passages from 24 all the way through 25 can bring much debate and consternation inside a church body. We're all concerned with interpreting your word correctly. We want to do that. So I pray that you would grant us that. Pray that we would open our hearts and our minds to see what you're saying here to us. And not merely as an academic exercise seeking what all of this means, but that you would open our hearts that we may understand what you're saying to us. That we can apply it and be changed, having encountered you through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we get into the text, this morning I want us to remember the context that we find this text in. Remember in chapter 24, Jesus has just responded to some questions that the disciples have asked. He responded really to two questions that they asked at the beginning of verse 3. And Jesus took two separate sections of 24 to answer their question in verse 3. He, from 4 to 35, from verses 4 to 35 of chapter 24, he answered the question about those days. And he, he was clear to mark out those days, a time period under which the disciples were going to be in uh, great persecution. The temple was going to be destroyed. Judgment was coming to the city of Jerusalem in their lifetime. He says this generation is not going to pass away until these things take place. And Rome is going to march in and he's going to they're going to destroy the temple. And there's going to be an era of church history that is going to be marked by that time period. Where Rome eventually gathers around Jerusalem and lays waste to the temple that's standing there in Jerusalem. And all of that happened in 70 A.D. And so from verses 4 to 35 is in Jesus' future, but is in our past. And it took place in 70 A.D. It's about 40 years into Jesus' future and in the disciples' future. Still within their lifetime, but still in the future. For us, that has obviously already taken place. However, in verse 36 and following, the scene shifts a good bit where Jesus begins to describe what his return to earth is going to be like. He says it's going to be swift. It's going to be like the flood in Noah's day. It's going to come upon the people suddenly. It's going to catch them unawares. Not everyone is going to expect it. Everyone's going to be going about life as normal. Unlike the passage that preceded it, this passage, he says, there's not really signs and wonders and things like this that are going to take place that are going to clue you into it happening. Instead, it's going to be life as normal. No specific signs to speak of. And then... Bam. Out of nowhere, here is Jesus' return. It's going to catch everyone unaware. The wicked, he says, will be swept away in judgment, and the righteous into his eternal kingdom. This, is, this eternal kingdom is known throughout the Bible, but particularly in, in Revelation, as the new heavens and new earth where Christ will reign with us forever. Now, I want to just be clear about some things first. I'm not super interested in picking fights. 
Never have I ever sat in my office and typed out a sermon and thought, this will get them going. Ever. I've never wanted to do that. There's virtually no way that I could have preached Matthew 24 and not made someone in here mad. You understand that? There's not one way I could have preached it without making someone mad. And I'm quite positive the way that I preached it definitely made some people at least upset or brought some consternation. However, the context of all of this from 2436 on through chapter 25 is set within the time frame of final judgment. Jesus has already given one parable there at the end of 24. You can look back there at the end of 24 and you can see he already tell, tells one parable about wise and, and wicked servants. And he's going to give two more parables coming up. The one today and obviously then the one next week. And then the final passage of, verse tw of chapter 25, you can see that starts in verse 31. He talks about the realities of what they're going to face when that day does come. That day, when he does reappear, he talks about the realities of what's going to happen there. And you can see, in verse 31, he starts talking about separating sheep from goats. It's the end. It's over. So all of that is to say, I can certainly understand someone's frustration. If that chapter 24 didn't quite go the way you hoped it would or thought it would. However, I want to reiterate just a couple of things that I just want to take the text of Scripture as seriously as I possibly can. I want to look at the words and what they actually mean. I want to interpret them the way they are meant to be read by the author himself. I want to take those words, I want to understand them in their context, and then we want to apply them. And I'm quite positive in all of the doing of that, there are places where I get it wrong. There is no doubt I've gotten it wrong before and will get it wrong again. If I knew where those places were, I would fix them. I wouldn't come up here thinking, I'm going to get this wrong. I'm intentionally going to take it wrong. All I want to do is understand it correctly. And so, I don't think I got it wrong here. But if you think I did then we'll just agree to disagree, and that's okay. The prevailing question that Jesus is going to be demanding of his disciples over the coming weeks, and this is what I'm really more concerned about, the prevailing question that he's asking his disciples, and he's putting on the forefront of their mind, and therefore it's on the forefront of our mind, is are you ready? Are you ready? Here's the judgment of God coming to you, are you ready? Regardless of what you think about how it's going to pan out, are you ready? Can you honestly sit there right now and say to yourself, I am ready? We're told explicitly by Jesus that we need to watch because we don't know the day or the hour. But how do we watch? What are we supposed to be ready for? And what are we supposed to do in order to be ready? Those are the questions that I hope to answer over the next few weeks.
But I want to start in our passage with looking first at the parable itself so that we're all on the same page in regards to how this parable actually unfolds. I find this more common than anything is we read a passage of Scripture and not everybody's on the same page of the details of the text. So more than simply points that are going to be put up on the screen, I want us to just think, what does the parable say? Where we just sort of lay out what are the details of the parable? And then what does it mean? What do all of those details actually mean for us? How do they relate to our situation now? And then obviously how that applies to us. Why does it matter? So we're going to go through each one of those. First, what the parable says. The parable centers around these two, or these, sorry, these ten unmarried ladies as they wait one evening for a groom who is late for a wedding. Now normally that's a bad sign that a groom is late for a wedding. Not so in this case. Part of the difficulty with this parable is that we don't know a whole lot about first century Jewish weddings. There's not a whole lot of culture that has survived until now, and so we make some assumptions based on the text and other texts like it of what the wedding is like. And so these guests here, these bridesmaids, or these these ten virgins as they're called, um, are guests probably of the bride, something like what we would think of bridesmaids. However, they could also be guests of the groom, which is probably more probable in this scenario. It makes more sense in this parable that they're guests of the groom and they play a certain role in the wedding itself. What does seem to be more apparent is that in the first century weddings uh, is that it was more about the groom than the bride. That it was the groom who was coming to take the bride. Remember, the groom is the one that pays the bride price to the family. He literally gives them money because they are losing a work hand, essentially. They're losing a person from their family, and they're going off to join another family. And so the groom pays the bride price, and she becomes his betrothed. They become what we would call engaged uh, now. And so the groom pays the bride price, and the wedding, it seems, is set up more that the groom is coming to take the bride. He's going to take the bride off and give her a life and continue to provide for her, and obviously uh, a line of family is going to be produced from them. So, of course, today it is completely the opposite. Nowadays, it's obviously more centered on the bride. You stand up in the wedding, and and, uh, when the bride enters, the doors fling open, and there's the bride standing there. Her father is coming to to uh, make her leave, and, or give her away, that's the word. <laughs> what, is, what is that? <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you go off script and there it is. But uh, he's coming to give her away, and uh, he, he, ge- he gives her away to the groom, but, it, but it's mostly centered to the bride. The door's open, she's standing there, everybody turns their attention to her, you hear, traditionally at least, here comes the bride, is the anthem that's played as she kind of marches down the aisle, and everybody is really there to celebrate the bride, and, and, and in first century Jewish weddings, it appears to be the other way around. So these, I can't imagine a groomzilla though, you know, that would, I don't, it has a, doesn't have as nice a ring to it. As a uh, as bridezilla, I guess. But these, so these bridesmaids is what we'll call them for now. Are, are sitting there waiting, and most likely, what their job is is to escort the groom into the chapel or the hall where they're going to they're going to be married, where the wedding is going to take place. And it looks like that it's sometime in the evening, probably when most weddings would take place. 
And so what they're doing is essentially announcing the arrival of the groom. They're escorting him in, and the, so the, the church doors are going to fling open, and they're going to play Here Comes the Groom as the ten bridesmaids come down and carrying their, their lanterns and all of this. And so we see here that of the ten bridesmaids, five of them are wise and five of them are foolish. Now, the reason for their wisdom or their foolishness depends on the amount of extra oil they bring for their lamps. So we need to be clear on this. All of them initially have their lamps filled with oil. All of them look like they are ready for the wedding. When the groom comes, they're going to escort him in. But what we find out is that five of them did not carry any extra oil. They don't have a flask of of extra oil in case their oil runs out. And you can see that in verse 8, where they turn to the five wise bridesmaids, and they ask them for some of their extra supply of oil because theirs, all of theirs have run low. And so they're holding in their hands these little palm-sized oil lamps. It's evening, but the bridesmaids, it turns out, have no idea when the groom is going to arrive. They think they know, but they have absolutely no clue when he's going to arrive. And so these wise bridesmaids, after having their oil run out, take their oil reserves in their flask that's with them, and they pour it in because they understand that the groom may be coming with imminence, but not immediacy. They've already applied that to the situation. They understand the situation at hand. The foolish, however, don't understand the difference between imminence and immediacy. So... It's a pretty straightforward story structure from here on out. You have the characters that are set up in verses 1 to 5, the first five verses. You've got the characters, the background, the setting. It's a normal story. All the background is set up. The groom has delayed, and all ten bridesmaids have now fallen asleep. And then we're introduced in the story to the rising action of the story. This is where you start to understand that there is a conflict now and a problem with the story that's been set up. All these details that have been given to you up front are now going to be put to the test as the conflict comes. And it comes when? In verse 6, when there is a cry in the middle of the night that the bridegroom has finally arrived. Now, ordinarily, this would be good news, but not so for the characters that have fallen asleep in the middle of the night and have run out of oil. Now, this isn't a problem, obviously, for the wise bridesmaids, of course, because they just fill their lamps back up, they trim their wicks, and they're good to go. The problem exists for the foolish bridesmaids who now realize that in the middle of the night, their candle has burned to nothing, and they don't have any oil remaining, so what is their solution? Well, like the grasshopper goes to the ant, so the unwise bridesmaid goes to the wise bridesmaid and asks for some of her oil reserves. And we see the foolish bridesmaid say this in verse 8, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourself. So the rising action of the story comes to us as we've been introduced to these characters, and it's now we realize that this story is really about a foot race. It's a foot race between the return of the groom and the people who realize they are unprepared for his arrival. It's a foot race. Who is going to win this race? 
the foolish bridesmaids were ill-equipped for his reappearance, unless it was at the time when they predicted it would be. In which case, then they would have been ready. But now they're not. Their lamps could not endure the wait. Do you understand that? That's what's being stated here. The lamps that were there were ready if he would have returned immediately. But as it was, their lamps could not endure the wait. It's a foot race. Can they make it to the market in the middle of the night without lamps, mind you? Could they make it to the market and back before the groom is escorted into the marriage feast? And so the climax happens there in verse 10, in their haste, they went to get oil and they make it back only to find that the door to the feast is closed and they're not allowed in. They beg and they protest in verse 11, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. So the sad conclusion to the foot race is that not only are they prevented from entering the feast that they've been wanting to enter, but the groom had actually no knowledge of them whatsoever. I want you to think about this for just a second. Think about in the context of a parable how preposterous this is. Jesus always introduced one element in a parable, nearly always, that seems preposterous. And this would be that. The good Samar- the parable of the Good Samaritan, the fact that a Samaritan shows up is preposterous. Here, the fact that the groom could look at the wedding party and say, I don't know you is preposterous. Imagine today a wedding taking place where all the bridesmaids have their bridesmaid dresses on, the bride is ready to walk in, And five bridesmaids realize they've forgotten their bouquet of flowers, and so they have to run back to get them and pick them up. And when they come back, the bride says to them, Who are you? Can you imagine that taking place? I don't know you, they're told. The point that it builds to happens in Matthew 25, verse 13. Watch, therefore, For you know neither the day nor the hour. It's difficult to know whether this this warning is stated by Jesus or whether this is Matthew just as the narrator reminding them what this parable is about or how he's using this parable. But either way, the moral of the story is a reiteration to the disciples of Jesus to watch since they don't know the day or the hour. Now that's a pretty ironic statement because in the parable we've just read, all ten bridesmaids fall asleep. And the reminder at the end is watch and be ready. All ten of them fell asleep. What do you mean watch and be ready? Well, obviously he doesn't mean watch the sky. Obviously he means something else by watch, and it's clear that five of the wise bridesmaids actually did that. Even though they fell asleep, even though they got tired, they were still watching and they were ready, whereas the five unwise were not. What is the difference? So with that in mind, let's talk about what the parable actually means. And first we need to talk about the timing of the parable. When is this we're talking about? What 
point in human history does this parable relate to? And I've already mentioned this once, and we're gonna, I'm going to reiterate this. And I want to, before I say this, I want to just double down. I don't have any desire to hurt anyone's feelings. I don't have any desire to make anyone angry. Believe me, it is not to my benefit that I make anyone frustrated with anything that I'm about to say. But, if you are persuaded to have a different opinion than me on how the end times and all of this sort of thing shapes out, that's fine. I just want you to base it on what the text actually says. Not what someone else told you, not some book you read it in, but on the words of the Scripture that is in front of us. So this big event that these bridesmaids are waiting on is most certainly a return of Jesus at the very end of human history. Now that's obvious. Every single one of us agrees that this is based on a return of Jesus. He plays the groom in this uh, parable, if it, as, as it were. Now it's obvious that this is a return of Jesus, but then the question is, what kind of return of Jesus is this? Now almost everybody in here has in their mind a return of Jesus, and I guarantee you, across this congregation, there's a different picture in almost everybody's mind as to what that return is actually going to look like. There's been a popular interpretation over the last probably hundred years or so to read this passage, and really the one that came before it, from all the way up to 2436 and following. Um, there's been a, temp, uh, a common interpretation of this passage that Jesus is describing here a secret rapture, that that's the return he's talking about, where he comes back and he snatches up the church uh, and they sort of disappear and go back to heaven. And the world then, obviously, as you can imagine, if that were to take place, we're, was, is going to be left basically spinning in, in sort of a chaos. And this is popularized, I, I'm sure you're familiar with the book series Left Behind and, uh, and, and many other books related to that, that particular topic. And some even think that this is a Baptist idea because so many people in Baptist church uh, teach that and, and believe it, and that really couldn't be further from the truth. Um, you need to understand that no one had ever even heard of a secret rapture until 1830. That interpretation of that passage had never been taught until 1830 when a man by the name of John Nelson Darby um, taught that and what I estimate is read it into the Scriptures. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. I don't think that's what he has in mind. Not only was he not Baptist, but he was repudiated by Baptists like Charles Spurgeon uh, at the time because they didn't believe him to be teaching the truth. He then separated from the Plymouth Brethren because they also didn't think that he was teaching truth. This idea of a secret rapture became really popular uh, in various churches because of uh, Bibles, uh, basically reference Bibles like Thompson Chain Reference Bible, uh, Ryrie Study Bible, and then obviously other works of uh, books that were produced later, by, like The Late Great Planet Earth, I think was a big one back in the 70s, by Hal Lindsey, and then obviously the fictional series uh, Left Behind. And so we're not necessarily dealing with those, and I don't recommend you getting your interpretation of Scripture based on those, but there's lots of other commentators that have mentioned this kind of interpretation of Matthew 24 and this part of 25. Now, as I said last week, I continue to believe that the way, what Jesus is describing here is his return, and it's sudden, and it's immediate, and it's the judgment of the world at the end of human history. 
And the reason that I think that is not because I'm trying to adhere to some sort of theological opinion or anything like that. It's because the context that this falls in. First of all is, is, 20, is chapter 24, verses 36 to 51, which we talked about last week and all the things that are represented there. I went through last week and explained that. Then it's the context of what he's describing in the parable this week. But then also, it's what's going to happen next week and what he is warning them to be ready for. He's warning them not because they might miss a rapture. He's warning them because they might be thrown into hell if they're not ready. He's warning them that judgment is going to come. And when it comes, it's going to be too late. It's the end. There is no changing. The door will be shut And there will be no opening at that point. And if you need any further convincing, all three of those parables, last week, this week, and next week, is going to build to verse 31, where there's the immediate separation of sheep and goats. So at the very least in the book of Matthew, as Jesus is describing, maybe he's truncating everything, maybe he's shrinking everything down, I don't think so, but... Maybe that's what he's doing, but he's describing here a very quick, it's over. All of a sudden, everybody's marrying and giving in marriage. Everybody's going about their life as normal, and then, bam! The throne is standing before them, and the door is closed. And the books are opened. And the goats are put on the left, and the sheep are put on the right. And the sheep are welcomed into his kingdom, and the goats are locked out of the kingdom forever. They're sent to hell where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what kind of appearance, what kind of return of the groom are these brides, are these these bridesmaids waiting for? What is the nature of this return? It is final. There is no getting in. It's over. At this point, they're marrying, giving in marriage. They're here to celebrate a wedding, and the next second, they're standing before the throne and they're being separated into sheep, sheep and goats. We have further evidence of this timeline, I think, in that the parable that Jesus is telling centers around a marriage feast. The marriage feast is a common theme throughout scriptures, really, of the final consummation of God's kingdom. When it comes to the very, very end, it's described in Revelation 19, 6 and following as the marriage supper of the Lamb. When Jesus, the bridegroom, is wed to his bride. So the timeline that we're dealing with here is the final, final, final end of all things sinful, all things temporary, when Christ comes to judge every person that has ever lived. Those who are his will be given eternal life on the new earth, and those who are not will be thrown into the lake of fire for all of eternity. I think it's pretty clear by the context what kind of return we're talking about here. The five wise bridesmaids were ready for this, and the five foolish bridesmaids were not. But this forces us to ask the question, what does it actually mean to be ready? How do I prepare for something that I don't know when it's going to take place? How can I actually be ready here? 
I've already said the return I don't think is a secret rapture that he's talking about, but rather judgment that he's talking about. The reason that that's important and the reason that I took a little bit to describe that is because though some have taken this to be the rapture, they, they translate that watch and be ready into watch the skies. Be ready in terms of what date is this going to happen? You can see even in the late great planet Earth, which I don't recommend you reading, that there's dates that are selected and projected that it's going to be because certain historical events have lined up. Now, not everybody that believes in that kind of rapture takes that approach. I, I get that. But some have done that because in that case, to watch and be ready can have that connotation. Watch the skies. Look at the skies. Be ready for Jesus' return to take you home. But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. Instead, we're readying ourselves for a court date. You don't know when it's going to take place. But at any moment in your life, and one moment it will be true, you are all of a sudden going to be standing in front of the throne of God. Are you ready for that? doesn't matter what date it is. Are you ready for that? It really doesn't even matter if I'm wrong on when this whole thing plays out. Are you ready to be standing in front of the throne of God? If it were to be right this very second, would you be ready to give an account for your life? Not literally keeping your eyes on the skies. Remember, the bridesmaids fell asleep. But they were ready to give an account for when the bridegroom came in. So much of the book of Matthew ties back into the Sermon on the Mount. And if you'll remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus has already prepared us for this event. He says in Matthew 7, 21 to 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's the same event being described many chapters ago back in the seventh chapter of Matthew. And we even have similar words here, except he's not speaking in a parable. He's speaking straightforwardly that many are going to say to him, open the door, Lord, will you let us in? And he's going to say the same thing to them that he tells you in the parable. I don't know you. I never knew you. So one thing becomes very clear that just like the parable, the ones Jesus is warning are those that consider themselves to be fighting on Jesus' team. Hear that. Think about that for just a second. The people that are cast out of the wedding, the people that are in view here, the people that are in view in Matthew 7 are ones that consider themselves a part of Jesus' team. That's utterly terrifying. Does it terrify you? It terrifies me. It should, to some degree, cause us to take a step back and question everything that we think. The ones he's talking about here consider themselves, look at the text, to be prophesying in his name, to be teaching in his name, voting in member meetings in his name, 
It doesn't say that, but I think it's implied. Preaching in his name? Casting out demons in his name? Defending doctrine in his name? Sharing the gospel in his name? Baptizing people in his name? The people that are in view here are on Jesus' side. By all accounts, they're invited to the wedding. They have their bridesmaid dresses on. They consider themselves to be blood-bought believers in the name of Jesus, but they're locked out. Well, then doesn't this raise the question? How do I know if I belong in the marriage feast or not? How do I know, sitting right here, whether or not I'm ready? Well, right after Jesus tells them that, not only does he say to them, the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven, he says that in that text that we just read, he also says right after that, in chapter 7, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. You could probably substitute in there. I think Jesus would be quite fine with you substituting in there. will be like one of the wise bridesmaids who brought oil reserves to the wedding. And then before that, he tells them in Matthew 7, uh, verse 17, he says, So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. How do I know? He's telling you all through seven, obedience is how you know. There's a little more to it than that. But obedience, obedience is how you know. In the Sermon on the Mount and throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has taught us that there is a distinguishing feature from one that is on the inside of the kingdom of heaven to one who is on the outside of the kingdom of heaven. And that distinguishing feature is fruit. It's not that doctrine doesn't matter. Of course it does. That starts to build the healthy tree. It's not that powerful signs of ministry don't matter. Of course they matter. That's the product of a healthy tree. It's that they're not the only distinguishing feature. So you might think to yourself, well, I'm sitting here in the pew and I have my doctrine squared away. I've got my ducks all in a row. He never says that as the fruit of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We certainly know it's necessary to have our theological ducks in as much a row as we can get them. To study the scriptures and to, to understand them and to get those theological ducks in a row, that's important. We definitely need to have that. It starts to build the healthy tree, as I've said. But every time Jesus comes back to talk about the health of a tree, he talks about the fruit that comes out of the life of an individual. What do they do? Follow me for just a second. When we say a person is saved, what do we mean? When we say a person is saved, what do we mean? We mean first that they have been justified in the courtroom of God. Nothing else matters unless that's happened. Right? 
Jesus has come, He has died on the cross, and because He has died, God has justified His people. In other words, Jesus the righteous died for the sins and made a payment for our debt to God. And because He has done that, we are declared in the courtroom of God not guilty. That's literally what justified means. We are declared in the courtroom of God to be not guilty. At which point in our life, at some point, the Holy Spirit comes in and takes up residence in the heart of an individual and changes it from the inside out. I think John 3, many other passages, where the Holy Spirit comes in and takes up residence in a person's heart changes it, replaces the heart of stone, and gives them a heart of flesh, like is prophesied in Jeremiah and so many other places. Gives them a heart of flesh. And because they now have the indwelling Holy Spirit and a heart of flesh, they cry out to the Lord, I am a sinner, save me! Right? Justified, Holy Spirit takes up residence, changes the heart, they cry out, I am a sinner, Save me. They profess faith in Christ. They begin, at which point, to acknowledge sin that's in their own life, and they begin to confess it to the Lord. To let Him know, this is, these are the sins. I'm dead to rights. But then, after that, there is a period in their life of steady growth. Not a period, just a whole time in their life. It's slow. Sometimes it doesn't look like growth. Sometimes it looks like a dip, like a stock market on any single day. But over the course of time, when you zoom out, there is a steady, steady growth. And that growth is knowledge growth, meaning they grow in understanding what it means to follow Christ, understanding who God is. They start to pour over their theology books and start to get their theology in a line, right? And produce more of that healthy fruit from the healthy tree. But then it's also spiritual growth. They begin to grow spiritually over time. They grow in having a distaste for sin. They realize more and more how sinful they really are and how much God has actually given to them in the gracious gift of Christ. They grow in a distaste for sin. They also grow in an appetite for God's Word, an appetite for prayer, an appetite for obedience to Christ and His teaching. That's what Jesus mentions there in 7. So this is the fruit that can only be produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. That's why we see Paul say, Galatians, uh, I think it's 5, 22 and 23, fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Systematic theology. He didn't say that. Just love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. What happens when the Holy Spirit comes in and takes up residence inside the heart of a saved person? This is what He begins to produce. And so Jesus is saying, well, does the person have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Are they growing in abundance? Are they growing steadily? Now, we have to be patient with everybody because they may have been really bad when they got saved. And so now they're less bad. Right? There's patience there, but over the long haul of time, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. is growing in them and producing more and more. But here's why the parable matters. The fruit 
that is produced in the life of those inside the kingdom, the five wise bridesmaids, the fruit, the oil that is really there, is not merely reading the Bible and prayer and going to church. The first fruit is a desire for the Lord. A desire change. And then out of that is produced the reading of the Bible and the prayer and the going to church as it begins to reciprocate and produce more and more desire, which then produces more and more of the learning and the growing and the, all of that. You see the difference between those two? Seems like it doesn't matter. It seems like it's a difference. That who, who really cares? Is it a desire? What, what, what's the big deal with that? Why is he talking about a desire change? There's a huge difference because you can fake the fruit for a long time. You can fool everybody. Every single individual in this room can fool all the rest of us. You know how? We can do all the things that the Christians do. We can read the Bible. You just take some discipline. Sit down and read the Bible. You can pray. You can sit down and apply some discipline to your prayer life and you can pray. You can go to church. Show up every Sunday. Every time the doors are open. You can do those things. You can fake the fruit. You can evangelize in His name. You can cast out demons in His name. You can serve everyone around you in His name. You can stand in the church and pray. You can fast in His name. And you can still be labeled a hypocrite and find yourself on the outside of the kingdom, as all of the Pharisees and scribes are now finding out. You can consider yourself a part of the church, but if all you do is tear down and divide and hinder, you're not in. You got all the fruit. You faked it all. Show up every time there's a sermon to be preached? Sing all the songs. Have them memorized. Sometimes sing them while you're washing dishes. You're just faking it. Because inside, and only you know this, inside there's no desire whatsoever. Inside, love, joy, peace, patience, they're not growing. Never have. Hatred, bitterness, have all taken over. But you do these things because you think you're supposed to. And you hear the preacher say, read your Bible, pray, come to church. And you think that's what it takes to get into heaven. But there's one day you're going to stand before the throne and you're going to find you've got no oil. Jesus uses these five foolish girls to illustrate really a type of person. He's not really concerned with the militant atheist who hates God with everything that he's got and who knows good and well if Jesus shows up, he's going to be crying for a rock to hide under. He's not talking to that person. He's not illustrating that person. He's illustrating a certain kind of person who is connected to him. Do you understand that? who considers themselves to be a part of the body of Christ, but inwardly, they don't get it. 
They don't understand why people would give themselves to this. Why every Sunday they would show up and they would serve and they would sing and and yet they do the things that Christians do so that other people hope that they see them as part of the body. But they're just going through the motions of obedience. People have argued about what the oil is. The Catholic Church says the oil is works. The Protestant Church says it's the Holy Spirit. The reality is it's both. It's the indwelling Holy Spirit producing the fruit of righteousness. That's what the wise bridesmaids have. That's what we're longing for, to be anticipating the return of Christ. That's how we watch. That is how we wait We grow the desire that we have for Christ and we work it out through works for the people around us, demonstrating the love of Christ to those that we find. Does it come from a heart that has love for God? Do all of your works, the things that you do, are they mere checkboxes? Are they cold, blank, white boxes that you're wanting to just check off Or do they actually come from a heartfelt love for Christ? A readiness to see Him on His throne and to serve Him eternally just as you're serving Him now. Are you ready? The question is, are you ready? Ready for what? Ready to face the judgment seat of Christ. Are you ready for that if it were to happen this second? If the answer is no, and I want to tell you about the gospel, What has actually happened here? God has sent His Son for you to die in your place. And that doubt that you're feeling right now is doubt that He also died for. Confess it to Him as sin. Trust that Christ's blood is enough to pay for your sin. And trust that it's only through the blood of Christ that you have redemption. That's it. This is how the love of God is demonstrated to us. It's through the blood of Christ who came to die and rose again that we may have life. You too can have life eternal. But I do want to warn you. Right now the door to the ark stands open. And Jesus stands there willing to have you come in. Through faith, through repentance of sin, through belief in Christ as your atoning sacrifice. He waits for you to come in. But there will be a day when the flecks of rain hit the sidewalk and the door you will find is closed. Where the ball is hit to you. And you have to make a decision what you're going to do with it. But by then, it will be too late. Repent now. Why would you wait any longer? Are you ready to face the judgment seat of Christ? If so, if you say, yes, I am ready, then here's what this parable says to you. Endure. Endure. That doesn't just mean wait, twiddle your thumbs, retire, move to a mountainside where you can avoid all temptations of sin. It doesn't mean that. It means to continue to work Day in and day out, what? Not just in checking boxes on your reading plan. Do you understand that's not the goal? 
The goal is to stir the heart's affections for Christ. Every day I wake up, my heart is like molasses. Better yet, like day-old queso. You ever seen day-old queso? It's stiff, it's hard, it's not worthy to put a chip in. How do you get it ready? Well, maybe you don't want to eat day-old queso, but if you did, how would you get it ready? Heat it up. That's the goal. It's not just to sit down in our chair and just check a box. That's not the goal. The goal is to stir the heart's affections for God. Sometimes that's the Scripture pointing to our heart and going, you need to wake up. And we come alive right there in our chair and we we realize what grace and mercy really is. Sometimes it's prayer. Sometimes it's music that helps stir those affections. And then out of those affections, then comes the wonderful reading of Scripture, then comes the prayer, then comes all of the spiritual disciplines that it feed back into and just continue to stir that pot and make it more hot and more hot. That's the goal. All of these things, your church body, the Word, prayer, music that we sing, All of those things are meant to be means of grace that He's given to you to help stir your affections for Him. Use them. Use them all. And don't stop until your heart is stirred in that way. That's what we're supposed to do to be ready. To engage our hearts in affection. To do the works then, afterwards, that He set here for us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, perhaps there are many things that have been said that have the temptation to anger, perhaps produce bitterness, maybe towards me or towards our church. I pray that you would stop that. I pray that you would hinder that work of maliciousness. And I pray instead that we could all focus on the question of whether or not we're ready. That is a question we can all agree on. And so I pray that you would do that in our hearts right now. Hold up a mirror to ourselves and allow us to see us for who we really are as we ask the question, are we ready? And I pray that in the end, every person in this room would answer that question with a resounding yes. That we could, with one heart and one mind and one mouth, scream at the top of our lungs, come, Lord Jesus. I pray that that would override everything else. A desire to stand before Jesus, to serve Him the rest of our lives in peace and security. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.